This is an ABC podcast. Hi there, this is David Rutledge with you once again for The Philosopher's Zone. Welcome to the program. I sometimes feel like there are two versions of Buddhist philosophy. One is the popularised sort of self-help version where we learn about awareness and being in the moment and the laws of karma and so on in very simple terms that can be fitted onto an inspirational fridge magnet. And then there's actual Buddhist philosophy, which is rich and complex, and it's amazing how the simple fridge magnet cliché is turned into very complicated and often paradoxical concepts once you really get down into them. Well, I've been thinking about all of that in relation to this week's program, which is about Buddhism and violence. Once again, we have on one hand the sort of fast food Buddhist wisdom that says that violence is bad and we should all be practicing compassion instead of hitting each other over the head. And that's not hopelessly wrong, but there's a deeper, more nuanced and way more interesting ethics of violence at work in Buddhist philosophy that we're going to be getting into today, courtesy of Martin Coven, who's the author of a recent book titled A Buddhist Theory of Killing, a Philosophical Exposition. In that book, Martin Coven brings Buddhist and Western metaphysics and ethics into dialogue with each other, and in the process, he offers new ways of understanding some of the intractable and very violent conflicts that currently plague our world. Martin Coven is speaking with Dimitri Vouros. The basic thrust behind my thesis work and, and this book was to approach the issue of the ethics of killing from a more strictly philosophical perspective, which is to say, to approach it not just on the level of normative ethics and what's good and bad and what people think are the best arguments for adjudicating between good and bad acts, but also to try to understand the philosophy of killing per se, what, what, what's involved in the nature of the metaphysics of the person, what's involved in action theory, what's involved in understanding things like the relationship between feeling and cognition, what's to be understood with regard to how certain kinds of cultural groupings conceive of apt objects for killing, namely certain kinds of persons and so on and so forth. These are classically philosophical questions. They're not just cultural questions and they're not even strictly ethical questions. They're metaphysical philosophical questions. So that was the basic thrust behind doing the work in, in as much as I thought that as it hadn't been done before and it seemed to me to be a largely unexplored problem and unexplored question, I thought that looking at it from a, a Buddhist perspective in terms of my own affiliation with Buddhist philosophy was, was a, a really worthwhile thing to do. Could you say something about the non-harm principle in Buddhist ethics and if it has any bearing on the argument you make about the ethics of killing in your book? The so-called non-harm principle, otherwise known as ahimsa um, in Sanskrit, is really a, an indic uh, ethical principle rather than a purely Buddhist one. So it goes well beyond Buddhism to go into Jainism and, and Hinduism per se. It is certainly normatively dominating the ethical background to any discussion of the Buddhist first precept against killing. That's true. And and so it ethically and culturally and historically informs Buddhist ethics, particularly the first precept, to, especially to the degree that most Western uh, listeners might not realise it, in, it also involves non-harm to animals, including insects and so on. So in the early Buddhist traditions, you have things like the monastics kind of being inculcated to not even kill mosquitoes, mm -hmm. to not tread on ants consciously. Interestingly, though, just as a sidebar to that, if a Buddhist does accidentally tread on ants, then there's no moral harm because it wasn't intended. 
whereby intention and non-harm become intimately co-constitutive, but also uh, indicative of a different kind of ethics that develops in the Buddhist tradition. You write that in Buddhist philosophy, three concepts are able to account for all human action. The first deals with intentions, the second with moral action, and the third with consequences. Can you give us a brief overview of these concepts? I, I can. I just would qualify that to say that not all human action can be summarised or explained by virtue of these three concepts, because there's lots of human action that people do which is not necessarily moral and which is not morally significant. But yeah, otherwise, the three basic ideas of intention, or chetana, and secondly, action or kama, intentional action, that is to say, and then thirdly, the results or consequences of that action, vipaka. It's important to realise that this whole model of moral consequence relies upon or presupposes a causal theory of moral consequence in particular, which is to say that, for example, if you do a good thing, then necessarily good things accrue from that by virtue of some metaphysical ordering of the world. So one quite important ethical and philosophical implication of that whole idea is that intention becomes incredibly important for adjudicating which acts are good and which acts are bad, rather than other external or more objective factors. And by the time you get into the Mahayana, the exemplary figure of the Bodhisattva, who is that Buddhist ethical figure whose behavior is almost entirely predicated on extremely good intentions. They can only act with the best of everyone's well-being in view. Therefore, their acts are going to be morally decided or adjudicated by virtue of their intentions. So uh, there are some unsurprising theoretical implications for this general model of Buddhist ethics in as much as if you focus specifically or even exclusively on the notion of intention and uh, consequences, then you end up with what could be called a subjectivist meta-ethics. And there are indeed some Buddhist ethics theorists like Damien Keown who have questioned whether or not that's really sufficient as a global theory of Buddhist ethics. On the other hand, you have his colleague Charles Goodman who published a book called The Consequences of Compassion which takes very seriously the notion of a kind of Buddhist utilitarianism whereby what determines the moral value of actions isn't so much the intrinsic nature of that action, but rather uh, what kinds of positive or negative consequences it has. Given such ideas, I'm wondering what they might say about something like the problematic case of euthanasia or of forms of compassionate killing. Yeah, specifically with respect to compassion, if we're taking compassion to be the morally decisive factor in action. And that's because, for example, if we look at the case of mercy killing, where you have someone who is in terrible suffering, it's very difficult, in fact, ethically or even phenomenologically to determine how compassion is going to decide the best thing to do in that case. One person could think that it's the most compassionate thing to do to end that person's life mercifully. Another person, including a Buddhist, might think that the most compassionate thing to do in that case is to let them live for as long as possible in order to accrue the positive merit and the positive mental states which are going to lead to a positive future rebirth. So you, you can see here that compassion as a morally decisive factor leads to directly polarised and opposite results, which tends to introduce the notion that compassion isn't always going to be morally unequivocal in every case. And that's why I'm concerned to look at more cognitive or more objective constitutive factors of the different lethal classes of killing in general. In your work, Martin, you develop a view of the person based on Buddhist sources. Can you clarify what Buddhist philosophy understands as the person 
and how you developed this idea in your book vis-a-vis ethics and killing. The the concept of the person in Buddhism is central. Uh, it goes back to the early Buddhist schools, but also Buddhist philosophy, whereby the analysis of the person is often contained in the analysis of the self. And it's important just to note here briefly that where Buddhism rejects the notion of the self, a kind of substantial, enduring, independent self called Atta or Atman, it doesn't actually reject the notion of the person or Pugala in the same way. In fact, historically speaking, the most dominant Buddhist school for many centuries was actually called the personal school, the Pugalavada, which held that there was an independent person in some sense or other, even though there wasn't a self. Right, So we need to make this distinction very clear. Apart from this particular Pugalavada school, which is now not extant and died out at a certain point, all the other Buddhist schools hold that there is no actually existing substantial person in Buddhist ontology. Nevertheless, there is what we call the conventionally real person. And the conventionally real person is basically an imputation of the mind upon what we call the psychophysical aggregates of the living sentient being, right? And that includes human beings, it also includes animals, basically any form of complex organism that we can identify has some form of sentience or sensitivity to suffering, can potentially qualify to be a person. Um, it just so happens that in, in historically speaking, contingently speaking indeed, the person is generally understood to be the human being. Um, this is actually very interesting in philosophical terms because later on, in philosophical history, we have the notion, at least in the West, that the person can even be encompassed to contain, for example, natural phenomena like rivers or mountains, but also primates like orangutans. And there is indeed some laws in the world now which include personhood, specifically for moral reasons, to encompass those kinds of, of beings. Um, but for Buddhist purposes, personhood is something that the mind imputes upon the psychophysical aggregates of the mind and the body for its own purposes, but which nevertheless does not exist in some metaphysical sense substantially as an autonomous, substantial entity in the mm -hmm. world. Western ethics often focuses on the intentions of bad actors, the reasons why such intentions are right or wrong. But your view is different and seeks to differentiate such intentions from what phenomenology calls intentionality on the one hand and the intentional object on the other. Could you flesh out this phenomenological approach and how it might play out in your understanding of violence and killing? So these three kinds of iterations of the notion of intention are important. I wouldn't say that they're exclusive of each other, so I don't reject the, the initial notion of intention as we discussed earlier. Um, certainly what someone intends to do, for example, whether or not they've done it accidentally, is very important ethically for deciding, particularly the legal cases that, that we've also mentioned. But when it comes to the particular analysis that I bring to bear on this discussion of, of lethal action, I'm interested in the sense in which the mind necessarily takes a certain kind of person as the object of killing and how it constitutes that person in a cognitive sense. And that's because for any given person to be an object of killing, it has to be conceived in a certain way. It's also perceived in a certain way. So this is where intentionality as a term of the philosophy of mind is quite significant, which is to say what? It's to say that the mind or consciousness it might well perceive, for example, a living sentient being in, in front of it, but it also necessarily conceives 
that living being in a very specific kind of way. And in fact, in Buddhist um, philosophy of mind, the notion of perception and conception is actually conjoined. It's, it's the same word, sanya in Pali or samjya in Sanskrit. And that's because Buddhist philosophy of mind understands that you can't have a perception without a conception. But how do we understand this in more strictly philosophical terms? Well, my particular approach in my text is just to simply look at the notion of the intentional object in that case. And it's pretty easy to understand that in any given case of, of killing, a person is going to be conceived in a certain way. It's going to be conceived as worthy of retributive punishment. It's going to be conceived as worthy of merciful killing. It's going to be conceived as worthy of ideological extermination, for example. It's going to be conceived as as a lethal threat, which I must immediately in real time act upon. So given that all these kinds of cases instantiate different kinds of person, what I'm looking at there is the properties of those persons. And that's because obviously people don't kill a person because they're a person, right? That's just far too broad and far too general. We don't kill generic persons. We kill mm -hmm. persons because of something about them. And this is a phrase, in fact, that I take from Thomas Nagel in one of his essays, where he says that we can only justify killing in war combat, for example, by virtue of something about the person. So basically, I take this idea of something about, and I develop an understanding of the person in each class of killing strictly with respect to what are the properties that must necessarily be present for that particular person to be apt for killing or to somehow ethically qualify for killing. So at that point, you can see that I'm not discussing whether it's right or it's wrong to kill. Mm -hmm. I'm just trying to understand what's the constitutive nature of the person who the mind conceives necessarily as the kind of person that can or should be killed. I'm just wondering if by creating a, a mental picture of what is out there and the non-difference between that picture you form of the world and the thing that you're looking at, in this instance, the person, uh, whether that objectification of the person also leads to instrumental ways of treating that person. So you, you don't treat them as an end in themselves, but as a means to some other goal. Indeed. I mean, there's definitely going to be classes of killing where people literally instrumentalized or exploited towards a certain kind of other end. Let me perhaps give you a bit of an example of the kind of thing I'm talking about. So say, for example, you have someone who appears to be a terrorist on London Bridge waving a very sharp knife around. Now, the counter-terroristic agent who's been sent out there by the government to deal with such threats, because of their preconditioning, because of what they bring, we could even call it an implicit bias towards that particular image, is going to assume that that person is necessarily a terrorist and indeed might be shot summarily as a form of protection of the public. But it might well be the case, objectively speaking, that that individual waving a knife around might just be a drunk prankster, it might be New Year's Eve, and the knife might be rubber. And in fact, objectively speaking, that person had no intention at all to kill innocent civilians on London Bridge. So this is the kind of thing I'm trying to adjudicate between. There are also the more extreme cases of, of, for example, psychosis, where people assume that someone is some kind of alien invader who is about to attack them. And obviously that's the most extreme case. But what I'm trying to bring forth here is the notion that it's, it's the contents of the agent's mind just as much as it is the contents of an objective state of affairs that determines what we could call the, the epistemic robustness 
of any particular case of judgment. So some cases are going to be more justified than others for these kinds of reasons. And when you actually do a full analysis of each of these classes of killing, you realize that in fact the classes of killing are incredibly differentiated in these ways. And it becomes fascinating. I mean, you've just mentioned using people as a means rather than an end in themselves. I think the case of what I call representational killing is most instantiating of that. We have that in war. We have that in ideological combat. We have that in terrorism. We have that in in lots of forms of killing which involve the symbolic superimposition of properties and identities on persons who might otherwise be innocent of those. What Buddhist philosophy is concerned to indicate is the way in which this, we can also bring in the term implicit bias here, the mind of certain kinds of individuals by virtue of their intrinsic makeup, but also certain kinds of cultures or certain kinds of subgroups and so on and so forth, whether we're talking about anti-Semites or racists or, you know, sexists or homophobes and so on and so forth, they obviously in some sense exaggerate properties of other persons which they take to be offensive or take to be unappealing or undesirable in some obscure way. And they make those properties definitive of the person. And so in one of my chapters of the book on representational killing, I kind of isolate the senses in which these particular cognitive agents and then indeed lethal agents take maybe just one property of a person, of an individual, to the exclusion of all other properties. And they basically reify that individual as that property and no other property. So for example, even though you have a Ukrainian civilian right now in Ukraine, an individual person who has lots of different properties, maybe a mother, a musician, a teacher, um, a potter, a singer or a dancer, or who knows what, right? But for the purposes of Russians, that person is one and only a Ukrainian and nothing else. And indeed, it's sort of terrible to think But in some sense, that's what allows the notion that there are going to be civilian casualties in a war zone, purely on the basis of their nationality, Uh, which when you think about it is quite a bizarre state of affairs, because obviously individuals qua individuals are far more than their nationality alone. And yet we're very used to the idea of collateral damage. We're very used to the idea that there's going to be civilian actors or non-combative actors who are killed in war as a matter of course. But the only way we can even accept that notion, regretfully, but nevertheless accept it, is because we are very used to reifying individuals in these ways. Now, Buddhist metaphysics is very concerned to say that in reality, people are just individuals. They're just particulars. Buddhists are nominalists. They're, They're metaphysical nominalists. They don't think that universals are real. Right? They think that universals like personhood is just another form of conceptual imputation. There is no actually existing Ukrainian out there in the world. There is just an individual whose identity qua Ukrainian is a conventional understanding. They're born in that country. They live under the, the laws of that land, but they're not intrinsically Ukrainian, just as a Russian is not intrinsically a Russian. So the Buddhist metaphysics of the person is concerned to deconstruct these reifications of persons precisely because this reification of the universal gets us into so much ethical trouble. So many forms of internecine strife, of identity politics, of opposition groups, and so on and so forth, derive precisely from this very issue of the reification of properties. So it is a big issue both in Buddhist metaphysics and Buddhist ontology, but then also subsequently in Buddhist ethics. You're listening to The Philosopher's Zone on RN and the ABC Listen app. This week, Dimitri Vouros in conversation with Martin Coven. 
who's a writer and research scholar working in ethics and philosophy. He's the author of A Buddhist Theory of Killing, a Philosophical Exposition. More details on the Philosopher's Zone website. Could you elaborate a little more on what you mean by reification and its role in the internal mechanism of the mind that leads to violence and killing? We should be clear that reification is a Western term. It comes from Western metaphysics and also Western critical theory and so on. So the idea has been introduced into Buddhist philosophical context from Western contexts. Nevertheless, the idea of reification is a root idea in Buddhist metaphysics precisely because it goes back to the Buddha's original teaching of non-self, which is to say that the Buddha was very concerned to say that any element of your psychophysical system, of your organism, whether it's physical or mental, what we call physical or mental, that you can identify as yourself requires some form of interrogation. And if you go into some genuine philosophical and also meditative praxeological interrogation of that property that you think is your true self, who you truly are, the Buddha proposed, metaphysically speaking, that in fact, whatever you think that is, it, it ultimately doesn't exist that way, or even at all. It might just be a thought, right? It might just be a sensation that you're temporarily having. It might just be the long accretion through memory of many particular thoughts that you build up as your sense of self. And indeed, this model of the self as a constructed entity, as a kind of irreal, inexistent entity that actually has no metaphysical substance, is in, in agreement with a lot of contemporary neuroscience and developmental psychology, which is concerned to identify what this self that we think we are is, right? And so the very earliest teachings of the Buddha really are all about this notion of the self. And, you know, we can simply put that in convenient philosophical terms and say, the Buddha was concerned to deconstruct the reification of the self as actually not, is not ultimately real. And in as much as we take our self to be real, to be in some both felt but also theoretical sense, as the proto-Hindus believed, to think that that self is ultimately real in some transcendental metaphysical sanctioned way mm -hmm. is precisely what the Buddha was targeting in his early metaphysics. And that really is the root kind of motherlode, one could say, of the subsequent development of reification theory, one could say, in Buddhist philosophy, because it really, everything, devol everything derives from this notion of non-self. And so once you've understood that there is no truly existing self, similarly, you can see that there's no truly existing person, even if there is clearly a conventionally existing person. And therefore, Buddhist philosophy proliferates into this vast kind of mm -hmm. edifice of understanding, whereby essentially it's very concerned to de-reify all these things that the human mind, from primordial kind of forms of ignorance, right, avidya, continually tries to take as its ultimate form of existence, right? Yeah. But how, how would such an approach deal with the idea of social constructivism, so the, the self and the person as constructed within a society? I think Buddhist metaphysics is very amenable to the notion that, that a lot of our social and political and judicial and other institutions are, are forms of what you've just said are socially constructed entities which we take seriously and we need to take them seriously because our lives depend on them. The Buddhist focus is more on, on the notion that we can take them seriously 
as conventional entities that we need, right? We need the law in order to regularize our, our societies and so on and deal with criminality and so on and so forth. But when we think that these things are metaphysically sanctioned, when we think, for example, that religious credos are given by some transcendental authority and then we defer to that authority as ultimately real, Buddhism is very, very concerned to try to interrogate that notion and say, are you sure? How do you know? Mm -hmm. What kinds of evidence do you have? And the Buddha was saying, look, all forms of interrogation of those concepts will ultimately lead to the conclusion that those kind of primal we could say elements of reality don't exist in the way that we take them to exist. Taking a concrete example, the 20th century is dominated by the rise of various dictatorships. They were marked by grave human rights abuses, including genocide. Could you comment on how your understanding of reification and cognition plays out in such events, either in the past or the present? I think that when we look at 20th century history, it's very, very easy for most of us to identify some key moments of human tragedy where the reification of the universal or the reification of, of particular identities or properties of persons took an incredibly pathological route in the Holocaust, probably most notably, and also particularly in religious strife between religious groups, whether they were within the same religion or, or between religions. So I think that the political dimension becomes more complicated because we're dealing necessarily in collectivities. And when we're talking about organizing societies in certain ways, we, we actually have to accept the conventional existence of social ontologies that Buddhist philosophy didn't or hasn't theorized in any overt or explicit way, which is to say that it's very difficult to bring a Buddhist metaphysical critique to bear on the various misadventures of all kinds of political systemic organizations through the 20th century, simply because they're so complex and they derive from so many different kinds of historical sources and they were dealing with such different kinds of cultural circumstances, whether it's the Khmer Rouge or, you know, the Vietnam War. It's very difficult to make a general statement about them. And unfortunately, Buddhist metaphysics probably can't, you know, I think it would be a category mistake to bring a metaphysical critique to bear on political phenomena, which by their nature do require an understanding of social ontologies. And, and I'll just add to that by saying that we see probably an instance of this kind of gap between Buddhist understanding and political understanding in contemporary Burma, otherwise known as Myanmar. And one can simply ask the question, why is it the case that a very old and very deeply imbued Buddhist culture, such as that of Myanmar, has ended up with 60 years of totalitarian dictatorship. Mm -hmm. And I think it's very largely precisely because of this lack of, of understanding of connection between the individually based work of refining the mind, refining the emotions and developing compassion and sort of the social ethics, which works on the level of the village, we could say, mm -hmm. but doesn't necessarily work on the level of the incredibly complex situation that you have in a country of 55 million people with Muslims and Christians and Hindus and Buddhists and all kinds of different kinds of cultural and ethnic groupings, which necessarily plays out in social and political ways. Mm -hmm. And so that's why we can identify this sort of explanatory gap between political understanding and the soteriological or religious focus of Buddhist ethics, which mm -hmm. is concerned about bringing individual people to some form of so personal that's salvation. A, that's a problem more of modernity, of, of an old culture 
being thrust into modernity and then having to deal with the contradictions of international landscape? I, I think it very much is. And I don't know whether the same kinds of social tensions existed before the development of the nation state. Mm-hmm. And if we take the nation state as one of the most sort of emblematic of modernity's sorts of institutions or inventions, then we can see that whatever might be valid for a pre-modern culture or society is often not going to be completely valid for a, a modern or postmodern one. Personally, I would like to see the nation state give way to a new form of collective human social organization. I don't think that nations are serving us very well at this point in the 21st century. And I think at that point, you could end up developing some very interesting Buddhist-influenced political theory, which takes into account the kinds of metaphysical and ontological concepts I've referred to earlier. Martin Coven. His book is A Buddhist Theory of Killing, a Philosophical Exposition. And Martin Coven was speaking there with Dimitri Vuros, who's a doctoral candidate in philosophy at Western Sydney University. This has been The Philosopher's Zone, and today's episode was produced in collaboration with the Australasian Association of Philosophy. And I'm David Rutledge. I hope you can join me next time. Bye for now. <laughs>